would you like to go ahead and uh, get us uh, kicked off with the 2022 event series? Absolutely. So thank you very much. Um, my name is Heather Berry. I am the STR division chair this year. Um, you know, we are an organization that is run by volunteers. And so one of the things that I like to do is just thank people for all of the time that they're spending offering these events that are meant to help our members engage and to continue to socialize. So this is our first event of 2022, and this is within our virtual symposia series. And so Gwen, thank you very much for organizing this series, and I'm happy to be here to kick it off. Um, you know, as Gwen mentioned, we have a lot of things that we do in STR. So I would encourage you to look at the calendar. Um, I would highlight that the second symposia series is coming up on January 31st. There's a couple of events in February. They're gonna deal with teaching. Um, and also our Meet the Theory session will really kick off in full force in the months of February and March. And so I would encourage you to look at the calendar and see what other events are coming. But so for today in particular, I really wanna thank the organizers. So Gwen and Navid both organized this particular event. And I wanna thank all the panelists for their time. You know, we try to offer series that are gonna be helpful to development strategic management scholars um, and everything that I'm seeing that's being offered and organized by all of our amazing volunteers um, really, I just think it's fantastic. And so I just want to thank you and I'll kick it back to Gwen so that you can actually start hearing the event that you came here to hear. So thank you, Gwen. All right. So um, I have a quick uh, slide to uh, give you um, a preview of all the wonderful events. So today, January 19th, we have Cooperative Strategies and Organizational Structure. And thank you, David, for putting the panel, wonderful panel together. And then later we have a scientific approach to strategic decision making uh, coming up at the end of January. Then we have in February uh, on non-market strategies, uh, Ilgas Arikan put together a panel talking about when do market versus non-market strategies help firms. Um, and that will be followed uh, by another uh, event um, in March. So on March 17th, we'll have the, the behavioral theory of the firm, uh, the perspectives of Neil Carnegie scholars, uh, Luke Rhee is uh, taking uh, leadership on that. Um, then we will have a corporate and international strategy in April, uh, led by Alvaro uh, Corvo Kazra. And then we have theory of the firm um, and competitive advantage in ecosystems, led by Cameron Miller and Elena uh, Pakensakova. So that is the very exciting events. Uh, so please uh, visit uh, the website, uh, follow us on Twitter, on Instagram. Uh, we have so much to offer to you. Now, let me get to uh, to pass the baton uh, to David. All right, okay, so uh, I'm going to share my slides. So let me see. Okay. Okay, so do you see the slides now? Uh, we see the slides and you can go into the presentation mode, please. Okay, so you see beautiful. the whole slides, right? Yes, beautiful. Okay, so uh, just a moment, let me just do this. Okay. All right, so do you see the whole slides, Gwen? I'm just- Yes, checking. it's the presentation mode now, go ahead. 
present presentation mode. Okay, so, all right. Uh, hi, everyone. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, depending on where you are. Thanks for joining Gwen, our panelists, and me. Uh, first of all, I would like to acknowledge the Strategy Division and Heather Berry's help in providing this platform. Also, a big thank you to our discussants and panelists for accepting our invitation to make this symposium possible. Uh, today's symposium is titled Cooperative Strategies and Organizational Structure. Right. So as you know, for most firms, uh, critical resources extend beyond their boundaries. A case in point is Apple and its partners. Uh, in fact, on its website, if you go to its website, Apple states that the Apple supplier list represents 98% of direct spend for material manufacturing and assembly of its products worldwide for fiscal year 2020, 98%. And Apple is just one example. In the pharmaceutical industry, cooperative strategies in various forms, in various governance modes, play a significant role in generating life-saving innovations. But creating value through cooperation depends on several factors. The column on the left in the table below uh, includes determinants of relational rents, uh, which, is, which are nicely summarized in Diane Singh's well-known paper in AMR 1998. On the right, you can see the sub-processes. I'm, uh, I'm not going to go through these uh, one by one. You are familiar with this, with this famous paper. Uh, literature on cooperative strategies have used this framework for explaining various facets of alliances, including their formation, performance, and termination. Um, however, due to methodological and perhaps theoretical reasons, we often ignore the fact that firms are made up of people, some of whom are dedicated to the alliances. These individuals are, in fact, their firm's interfaces in interacting with other firms. So in today's panel, we are going to suggest that there is an advantage in zooming in on firms and instead of anthropomorphizing firms, look inside to better understand the dynamics of cooperative strategies. In the alternative representation adopted from a relatively unknown, uh, unknown book chapter by the well-known organizational scholar Stacey Adams in 1976, partner A and partner B each dedicate a group of their employees to the alliance. They are represented uh, by the red circles. So uh, HR human resources A and HR human resources B, as you can see here. At the same time, these individuals interact with other employees inside the firm. So they play a dual role. These individuals make up firm's interfaces and play boundary spanners roles. Their actions are facilitated and restricted by both formal and informal structure of their respective firms. To discuss this issue, Gwen and I are joined by five scholars and friends. First, Xavier Castanier, who has conducted fascinating studies on cooperative strategies, is joining us from Lausanne. He will be, discussant, he will be the discussant of the papers. Trevor Young from Katz School of Business at University of Pittsburgh. We'll talk about external cooperation as a contested decision, intra-organizational intra power, team dynamics, and risk perceptions. Neos Palomeras of the Department of Business Administration at University Carlos III of Madrid will discuss staffing decisions in alliances. 
Uh, Adam Kleinbaum from Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth College will discuss a network lens on cooperative strategy, challenges, and opportunities. And my friend and co-author Deepak Nayak from Temple University in Philadelphia will present a working a working progress paper titled Divided to Unite, how does competition in a firm's alliance portfolio affects its knowledge production structure and outcome? So without further ado, I would like to invite Trevor to uh, present uh, his paper. Thank you. Uh, thanks very much, uh, Navid and, and Gwen, for the invitation. Uh, happy to be here with you. So let me get right into uh, my presentation. <clears throat> um, that look okay to everyone? Good, okay, great. All right, so, um, so external cooperation the contested decision, team dynamics, intra-organizational power and risk perceptions. And um, all the pictures you're going to see today are pictures from uh, the field site um, where we uh, collected data. Um, and, uh, you know, so this is really a paper about the formation of collaboration, cooperation um, between firms and how they operate through team dynamics. Um, specifically, and, and, and the, uh, the evidence comes from a firm developing uh, advanced automated manufacturing systems. Uh, engineers, machinists, electricians collaborating to develop these systems and partnering with these external uh, um, uh, uh, partners who develop subsets of the systems. Um, and how they make decisions about which partners to work with and how the team dynamics shape that. So I'm gonna make three you know, high level points. I wanna make three high level points in this presentation. One um, is that cooperation with new partners is an area of cooperative strategy where intra-organizational dynamics are particularly important. That's the first thing, new cooperation is, is important. Second, that a meso-level perspective offers a useful perspective on the antecedents of new partner cooperation. And the third, that power is a key team member attribute for understanding these dynamics. Right? So those are sort of the three high-level points. And much of the basis for today's talk comes out of a, a paper that I wrote with, with Adam Kleinbaum, another, another panelist you can find in, in org science. And so we're happy to share some of this work. So, New external collaborations, right? Why are these new collaborations important? Many of you already you know, know these are opportunities instead of going with a familiar partner, going with a new partner, new resources, new information, new technology, and particularly in settings where innovation and creativity is, is so important, right? These new collaborations are important. And why are intra-organizational dynamics so central to this? Because these new collaborations are risky a lack of established routines with the partner, a deviation from the status quo. And so there, this triggers some oversight, this triggers some review process deviating from the status quo. So this encourages us to look at the intra-organizational dynamics that, uh, you know, that, that are going to um, you know, shape that uh, decision-making process. And, and, and so, when we think back sort of the existing, you know, organizational theory literature about, you know, these new collaborations, you know, there's contingency theory talking about organic and mechanistic structures and how these less hierarchical structures give more autonomy to lower level individuals to develop these collaborations. 
There's research on cultures of autonomy and accountability that give more or less uh, you know, autonomy to those at the front line to develop these new relationships. And then there's research on individual power, um, that people in positions of power have this experience, this, this approach, the psychology of approach, diminished inhibition. And we're gonna draw on some of this stuff, but what's remarkable about all of these is that they assume, uh, first of all, they assume that there is risk in development of new collaborations, that in order for these to occur, that you actually have to be giving authority, sort of reducing the oversight that they face. So sort of consistent with the idea that new collaborations being risky, but also that these decision makers are unitary these unitary individuals at the bottom. So you can think about a centralized structure and a decentralized organizational structure. And it's, you know, sort of how much power do these people at the bottom have? But actually the dynamic, you know, in many settings is something more like an interdependent project team, especially in these knowledge intensive settings. And so that's what we're going to focus on, right? This, this team dynamic of decision-making shaping the formation of these novel relationships. And so drawing on, on prior teams research on the, the dynamics of new idea integration, um, we can think about an initiator role, right? The person who's proposing a new collaboration, proposing a new relationship, possibly the person who has the prior relationship and brings it into the team. And then the role of the other team members as audience members responding to it, supporting it, challenging it, questioning it. Two distinct roles shaping new collaboration formation. And the prior literature tells us that, that power, people's approachment, you know, their, their psychology of this approach or disinhibited mentality is going to shape their behavior. Previously, just thinking about unitary actors, in a sense, just thinking about that initiator role, but not considering that audience member role. That literature has also not thought about types of power. And so that's something we bring into this, that power can have different degrees of legitimacy, formalization, and stability, right? Power can be formalized, stable in a role, or it can be more fluid. For example, the informal power you hold through your social relationships within the firm. And these in turn are going to have different effects. So while we anticipate that initiators with more formal power are going to be more likely to promote these novel relationships. Actually, when you think about the role of the audience member, the other members of the team, they might be in positions of formal power, also more likely to challenge, as see their role as sort of to question, right? Think about that senior uh, faculty member in your you know, research team, right? Who feels quite uh, emboldened to question the ideas that you have. But with respect to informal power, Right? This is a much more fluid, less visible source of power, something that people are at greater risk of losing. And so we actually anticipate risk-averse behavior, that people in positions of power, when their power is informal, might avoid developing new relationships. And they might be more likely to challenge those new relationships as audience members in order to avoid the potential negative consequences. Let's just stay with the familiar. Uh, option that we have. Now, one of the challenges of doing this kind of, of, of work um, is the kind of data that you need to do it. Um, and so this data was collected from a firm 
building these multi-million dollar systems of advanced automated equipment. Imagine the, you know, the factory of the future with, with people not actually working in it and lines and rows of machines. These are you know, one to $5 million projects. And companies actually hire these firms to design, build, and install these systems. And within these complex systems, you have sub-components that are developed in collaboration with external robotics experts or um, uh, uh, you know, um, pneumatic control experts or vision systems experts. There's complex technology that gets integrated into these systems. And so these companies don't develop the technology themselves. They work with external partners. So within the firm, you have projects and project teams. And then within the project teams, they're making decisions about who they're going to collaborate with. And so in order to get data on all this stuff, one of the, one of the obstacles, as Navid pointed out, is access to data. And so what we did is we got access to their internal ERP systems. So all of the archival data over about 10 years of every collaboration choice made within every project, right? Who the, you know, for example, here is a, is a feeder system in the top right corner. Um, this feeder system has to feed a particular part into the system at a particular rate, get it into a particular position, right? Highly calibrated, highly specific. Who are they gonna work with to develop that, that sub-technology? So you need, you need information on the collaborator. You also need information on the content of the, the work that they did with them. Then you need information on who within the team led that collaboration and who within the team was working at different. So you need detailed personnel data on the project team over time. You need performance data. You need data on the collaborators. And so this internal archival data is particularly valuable in this regard. So that's what we rely on. Um, to capture formal and informal power, this firm happened to be a partner structure as many professional service firms are. So we can distinguish between people who are partners and people who are associates in the firm. Uh, a course, but very clearly delimited distinction. And then uh, with, with, with Adam's help and you know, Adam's expertise in you know, looking at social networks, we were able to analyze people's histories of prior collaboration and developed a measure of informal power based on how much collaboration and position in people in the social in the network of prior collaborations as a metric of their influence, their informal influence within the organization, based on who they had worked with, who they sort of uh, had had familiarity with. So we're trying to predict whether they choose a novel partner or a familiar partner based on whether the initiator, the person who's listed as the lead on that collaboration, is a position of formal power, a position of inf a greater informal power, and then the, the audience members as well. What formal or informal power do they have? And so these are interaction charts showing. So here we're looking at the interaction of the formal power of the initiator and the formal power of the audience. And the baseline, so in only about 2% of collaborations do they choose a new, do they work with a new partner? So it's a relatively rare event. So the baseline is, is down by the intersection, but the orange line is when there is a, an initiator with formal power. When they have formal power, they are two to three times as likely 
to work with a novel partner, but only when the other members of the team, okay? So on the x-axis, we have the teammate formal power only when they are low in formal power. So an initiator with formal power, but the rest of the team is less likely to contest it. Here we look at the formal power of the initiator, the orange and blue lines. Orange is high formal power initiator, right? Blue is low formal power initiator and the informal power of the teammates. So looking at the interaction of these two types of power. And here again, a high formally powerful initiator combined with a low formal power audience leads to right, these new relationships. And then finally, interestingly, when we look at the interaction of informal initiator power and informal audience power, what we see is that the highest likelihood of initiating new collaborations comes from when you have an initiator who's relatively less central in the social network. Somebody who is relatively disconnected, you might say less inhibited, they have less on the line, they have less to lose. And so they're more likely to try new things. Remarkably, you know, I talked about how the, you know, the, the, how team dynamics are particularly important for thinking about these new collaborations. We considered what happens when you think about, you know, collaborations with people for a second time or a third time. And what we see is that the effects of these intra-organizational dynamics go away as we don't just look at an initial collaboration, but the second time, the third time. And so it seems that these interpersonal dynamics seem to matter less as we talk about more routine collaborations. And then interestingly, when we shift the strength of the social ties so that it's not just based on small amounts of interaction to establish a tie or relationship to develop your centrality, but longer durations of interaction. So more stable, more established, more visible relationships that actually informal power, people with informal power start to behave in a more risk-seeking way, more like people with formal power. So very shortly to wrap up, Right? Whether people engage in an inhibited or disinhibited way, right? whether power inhibits or encourages collaboration is sort of different from the prior thinking that give people power, they will experiment with new relationships. Actually, the dynamics are more sophisticated than that, whether they're in a position of initiating relationships or serving as an audience member. Going back to my earlier points, the importance of intra-organizational dynamics, especially for new partner development. That seems to be a key area where these internal dynamics really matter. The meso level and power is a key attribute. In terms of where things can go in the future, one of the limitations of our study is that we really don't get into the fine-grained dynamics within these teams. Okay? For example, you know, is it more than just two roles within the relationship? You know, do they go back and forth more times? Are there other, and also when these teams work together repeatedly, do they establish routines about how they make decisions that, that moderate this? And then beyond establishing new relationships, you know, there's the question of cultivating these new relationships, right? So developing the relationship with that external partner, enriching that relationship. What role do the intra-organizational dynamics play in that? What role do team dynamics play in that? So 
thanks everyone for the time uh, and you know look forward to a conversation with you. Thank you, Trevor. It's a really interesting paper. Great. Thank you so much. So uh, next in line, so Neos from Madrid. So she has an interesting paper at SMJ. So she's going to discuss that paper and talk about the staffing decisions in alliances. Neos, please. Okay, thanks a lot. Can you see the, the screen, the PDF? Um, yes, but it seems to be censored on the right. Now it's better. No? Okay, sorry. Okay, so thanks a lot, uh, Navid, for the invitation and Gwen. Uh, so I, I appreciate it and thanks for organizing this, uh, you know, exciting symposium around this, you know, uh, this topic. So um, actually just, you know, to put things a little bit in, in context. So basically, you know, um, I got this, the invitation for, to participate in this, in, this, uh, in this symposium in light of this paper that Navid was mentioning. Uh, in which basically, you know, I, uh, a co-author and I, uh, David Duerchem and, and I, uh, we look at um, alliance structures or alliance structure and, um, and, uh, and staffing decision, right? So Navit asked me to talk about, you know, alliances and firm internal structure. That's a little bit different, right? So I try to, uh, you know, I try to um, reflect a little bit on this, on the linkage between these two. So more than presenting the paper, I actually, you know, I'm, presenting a little bit the paper, but also kind of linking it to this, you know, the, the potential and, you know, the, the, the potential research gap that uh, is there, um, you know, linking the staffing decisions with the, with the, with the firm internal structure, right? So that's the, that's the idea here. So, um, so you all know what a strategic alliance is, obviously, right? So I just put here this definition by, by Gulati. Um, so probably, you know, um, each of us may be thinking right now on a very different example of alliance, right? So uh, Navid, for instance, uh, was talking about, uh, you know, Apple and, you know, uh, all these relationships with the suppliers, right, for the, for the iPhone. Um, you know, some of you may be thinking about, you know, the joint development of electrical vehicles, for instance. So there are now a lot of car companies that are aligned with competitors, right, to develop more efficient electric vehicles. We can think even of licensing agreements between, you know, pharma firms and biotechs. So, you know, alliances and even strategic alliances are kind of very broad concepts, right? So they uh, involve so many dimensions. They can be focused on different parts of the value chain. They have different boundaries, right? You can cooperate with supplier or with a competitor or with a university, right? And there are many different structures, right? So equity and non-equity and the non-equity there are a lot of types, so you all know this. So uh, my point here is that, you know, um, sometimes kind of we are a little bit ambitious, right? And we want to explain kind of, um, let's say we want to explain something that could be applicable to all alliances. And that's something that's a little bit difficult, right? At least challenging. So uh, what I will do, uh, so, you know, this, this very generic talk sometimes is actually detrimental, I think, to the, to the research, right? So it sometimes complicates the analysis that we want to do and the conclusions that we, that, we, that we can reach. So what I will do today is to focus on what I know more, actually, that's the R&D alliances. So these are very specific type of alliances in which um, 
you know, the, the most kind of the most relevant asset is uh, its knowledge, right? So um, basically, you know, in this type of alliances, um, what firms try to do is to, uh, you know, to solve a particular technological challenge thanks to the potential complementarities between the knowledge of the two firms, right? So the two partners or more than that, huh? but let's say two. So uh, it's about sharing knowledge in order to generate more knowledge, right? So uh, the most important type of these alliances, and you probably all know about this, is this tension that firms have between the sharing, the, the sharing of, of their knowledge that's absolutely necessary for you know, reaching the objective of the alliance, and at the same time, safeguarding knowledge, right? So they have this uh, danger uh, when they share knowledge that the partner can then use this knowledge, let's say, uh, you know, in a, in a, I mean, it can use this, this knowledge, you know, outside the alliance. So basically we talk about misappropriation of knowledge, right? Um, so that's the main danger, right? So there is this tension between, you know, I have to share knowledge, but at, at the same time, I have to protect my knowledge because otherwise the more the partner knows about my knowledge base, the better able it will be to compete with me, right? So basically there is this constant tension. So what happens in the literature? So basically, uh, previous literature has focus uh, on the study of the majority, right? So there is a huge body of, uh, of alliance literature. But uh, so there is a, um, a set of papers, right, uh, that uh, try to study, you know, how alliances are designed in order to tackle, let's say, this, this trade-off, right? So basically the idea here is that um, firms, the firms involved in the alliance design the alliance in a way that basically uh, can, you know, allow kind of the benefits of the shedding between the partners at the same time that mitigates and minimizes the mis this misappropriation hazards, right? The main, um, the main topics that are, or the main aspects of the alliance that are, uh, typically studied are uh, related with the governance structure, right? So the organizational form, the governing body, the decision rights, how they are shared, which are the control mechanisms. But, you know, uh, we can also understand like all the literature on partner selection, right? As trying to do exactly the same, right? So I select a partner that, in, that you know, for instance, that it's not that dangerous, right? So that uh, I have trust uh, on, on it. So basically it will not misappropriate my knowledge, right? Um, we can also talk about the scope of the alliance. So uh, basically, you know, to what, which activities fall into the alliance, right? So like by limit or, you know, uh, the, 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 the aspects of the, of the um, let's say of the joint development in this case that, that, are, uh, that are shared with the partner or not, uh, to what extent. So this is basically what previous literature has done. So what, um, what's here the, the, the potential gap, right? And linking with you know, this uh, query from, from Navit about the organizational structure of firms. So actually, if we think about firms organizational structure, right? So we think about uh, decision-making process, right? So how the decision-making process you know, unfold in, in firms and also how the flow of information goals right so this is this is very important right when we talk about the flow of information we talk about the flow of knowledge so this is critical for alliances in which knowledge is a very important part 
So uh, when I talk here about, you know, organizational structure, you know, this could be formal structure, right? As Trevor was, uh, was uh, for instance, mentioning about centralized or decentralized structures, but it could be also informal, right? Basically, social networks inside the firm to whom I talk to, right? In, in my kind of um, um, lunch breaks, right? Uh, well, I used to talk, right? When we were, uh, when everyone was at the offices. But um, so the point here is that, you know, uh, if you think about this, you know, I, I had actually never thought about this. Uh, so this structure, right, may impact on many different aspects of the value creation and the value protection of an alliance. So even we can think even that this could be potential antecedents on the alliance formation and design. So let me go a little bit more um, specific. So I want to illustrate kind of uh, this, um, these ideas in this decision of alliance staffing, right? So I will talk a little bit first about, you know, the R&D staffing and alliance design. This is what I did with, uh, with uh, my co-author in, in this SMJ paper. Uh, that I was mentioning before, and then, you know, how we can link this decision of R&D staffing with the firm organizational structure. And I think that this opens actually, you know, um, you know, a set of interesting research questions that, that could be kind of, you know, thought of and refined. So basically, I'm just, these are just, this is just food for thought, right? The second part. So, um, so let's start by the, by the, by the, the first block, right? So talking about the alliance design, right? And the R&D staffing. Um, as Navit and Trevor said, right? So people, it's important, right? And I'm glad to see that, you know, there is more and more people in alliances thinking about people, right? The people that's involved in the, or who is involved in the alliances. So actually, um, you know, this was an, an idea that, you know, I, you know, I, I, I had never thought about before uh, kind of going into this project with David, but actually I, uh, we found out that uh, the first one talking about people in alliances was Hamel in, uh, you know, some decades ago. Uh, and he was actually noticing that, you know, that when we talk about learning in alliances, that there is a lot of talking about learning in alliances, this learning, the majority of it takes place at the lower levels, right? And by lower levels, he meant, you know, at the level of the employees, the employees who were they're working with the employees of the other company in order to develop joining something, right? Um, some product, right? So, um, and he was noting, right, that, you know, they were the acquiring knowledge and they were also kind of defending the knowledge to leak to the, to the, to the partner. So actually from that moment on, some other papers, not many, right, but some papers, acknowledge this role of employees in alliances, right? Specifically in R&D alliances, right? So um, employees are, you know, are the conduits for knowledge transfer. They, 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 they have the knowledge embodied, right? And they are the, the ones who can transmit it better, right? So they are the, the, they transmit the knowledge from the firm to the alliance and from the alliance to the firm, right? So, and the alliance means the other partner, right? So the point here is that they are important conduits for knowledge transfer, but at the same time, and this is like intrinsically linked, they are also the source of knowledge leakage, right? And this is the problem. So these are basically the two implications, right? We need employees, right? We need people who transmit the knowledge and who can learn from the partner as well, right? So we need them. And actually there are some papers that examine kind of the, 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 the clauses in the contracts, in the alliance contracts. And they see that, you know, that's, you know, in a non-negligible part of the 
alliance contracts, there is the mention of, you know, I need that many workers with that, with this knowledge and even specific names of people who uh, are, uh, who have to be, let's say, in the alliance, uh, who the other partner wants in the alliance. So, uh, so this is one implication. The other implication is that, you know, that we can uh, basically design mechanism, and this is what the literature has suggested, is that we can design the alliance, the structure of the alliance, in a way that minimizes the knowledge leak, the knowledge, the knowledge leakage. So in this in this sense, um, you know, all the literature mainly had focus on the formal structures, right, that restrict knowledge flow. So it's like, okay, I send someone to the alliance, but I will, I will try to make sure that they don't talk too much, right? So basically it was about restricting the, the, the knowledge that they were sharing with the party. So in our paper, what we do, it's basically we, uh, we kind of zoom in this, uh, this uh, decision of, you know, staffing the Alliance, the R&D Alliance with R&D workers as one of the items, let's say, of the Alliance design. Right, so the idea here is that okay, if I have to devote workers, obviously to the to the alliance, this selection, the selection of the workers that I allocate to the alliance, uh, can take into account the misappropriation risk that it involves sending them, uh, allocating them into the alliance. Right, so the idea here is that, and this. Uh, links to kind of other research that you know that uh, that I have on IP protection right so here we were talking about you know how the knowledge of the worker is protected by IP how effective is the IP protection of the R&D worker so um, you know by by allocating to the alliance someone who has a, a stronger protection this means that you know that he, she will share the knowledge, but it will be protected against misappropriation. Why? Basically because even if the partner knows, learns about this knowledge, it will not be able to use it, right? It, the more protected this knowledge is by IP, the less able it will be to use this knowledge afterwards outside the alliance. And that's the idea. So, uh, you know, these are kind of the, the findings. So we find that so we, we go to the to the inventor level, right? And we try to characterize inventors and their protection, right? So we, we do this analysis and uh, that's what we find, right? The, like, you know, everything else equal. So inventors with similar knowledge backgrounds, right? If we compare them, so it's more likely that, you know, they are staffing collaborations, those that are more protected, right? Um, and we also find that the, this effect is uh, stronger, is more salient uh, in alliances in which we can anticipate a higher risk of leakage, right? Um, so basically where the other structural mechanisms are not as strong. So this is, well, this is very briefly our paper, right? So, and this is kind of, you know, how we link these staffing decisions with the alliance design. We consider that staffing can be one element of the design of the alliance. So um, going to the, you know, how this can be related with the firm's structure, right? So going back to this idea of the two main objectives, right, of the, of the alliance, the learning and the, and, the, and the misappropriation risk. So 
if we think about you know uh, the learning that's something that we don't explicitly talk about in our paper but we can think that you know these workers participating in alliances they are gatekeepers and they are bringing the knowledge from the outside to the company right but i mean is that the end of the story? Uh, the end of probably that's not right. So in uh, all um, in all the you know the the, the the literature about knowledge and learning, so we know that what we want is that the knowledge gets spread into the company, right, into the firm. So basically, it's very 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 important the internal knowledge flows. And what's a very important determinant of the knowledge flows is the internal structure of firms, right? So basically, um, so if I uh, you know if the staffing decision involves you know, involves, you know, sending some, some, uh, some inventors, some researchers that can then spread more disinformation, you know, uh, across the firm, this could be, you know, one element that could be important in this decision, right, to uh, staff, you know, to staff alliances. So here, you know, I'm thinking about, you know, uh, the structure of teams. I'm thinking about, uh, you know, uh, going back to Allens, for instance, you know, uh, how, you know, uh, whether, you know, people is collocated uh, or not when they, you know, uh, when they work together, the size of teams, the size of departments, the interconnectedness between them. So all this could actually play, we know that it plays a role in the, in, you know, in, in the knowledge flow. So probably it plays a role also on the, on how the knowledge gets spread after the collaboration, right? And obviously the informal structure as well. So, um, Thinking about how the firm structure affects the success of an alliance in terms of the learning, we can think that you know it actually it's very very important, right? Because it determines part of the success of the alliance. That's you know the learning potential. The other side of the story that's the protect the protecting knowledge, like the sharing and protecting, and these are two sides of the same coin. So. Um, you know, here the thing, uh, the, 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 it becomes everything more interesting even, right? So basically the idea here is that, um, so, so we can think about, you know, and these are examples, just examples, right? So um, there are different, uh, different, you know, different, different uh, aspects of the firm structure that can help in protecting knowledge, right? So um, when we send someone to collaboration, we send, we allocate someone to collaboration, this person is not sharing only her knowledge, right? It's sharing the firm's knowledge, right? She knows more than what she has directly worked on, right? So she knows about the work of her co-workers, right? So basically when you are staffing the collaboration, you, you need to know that, you know, that the knowledge shared will be more than the knowledge of this specific inventor. So it will be the knowledge that this inventor is exposed to in the firm, right? So this is very important also in, for posing the risk, for estimating the risk of, of this allocation, right? So uh, here we can think, for instance, about, you know, the, div the division of labor in teams, right? So there is, um, you know, um, there are certain papers, right, and probably you know about them, that talk about the complementarity or substitutability of the knowledge in the design of team, right? So when you design a team, the, 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 you can design the work in a way in which, you know, everyone knows a little bit of everything, right? Uh, so basically, you know, they have complementary knowledge or, you know, so, so every, uh, or, you know, that everyone has an overview of everything, right? So this would be substantive knowledge, right? So if the work is designed in the, in a way in which the, knowledge of the different 
members of the team is complementary, then this knowledge will be more protected, right? Because everyone knows only a piece of it, right? Not the whole story. Let's think about an innovation, right? The generation of an innovation, right? If everyone is very specialized on a given on a given part of the development of this innovation, this is more uh, this knowledge is more protected towards the outside, huh? whether these people move or whether they go into an alliance, right? To work with with uh, workers of another firm. Um, Alcácer and Zao, for instance, they talk about, uh, you know, R&D teams that were co-located or not. And, you know, in, uh, in settings in which they, there was a high risk of competitors learning about, you know, about, uh, about the innovation of a given team, they were observing that actually what firms were doing were, you know, were forming, was forming teams in which, you know, people was was not collocated. So the, the, the knowledge gets more dispersed, right? So all these are characteristics of the team design that influence in you know, how much the inventor that's allocated to staff a collaboration can share with the, with the, with the partner, right? And think that many times this, you know, this sharing is, um, so is, is unintended, right? Is unconscious, right? So, Mm, thinking also about and, and linked to this idea of the complementary substitutive knowledge of the members of a team in general, right? So if your workforce in the firm is more specialized or more of a generalist type, this may have an effect as well, right? So again, a generalist type probably you know knows you know more about you know what's happening uh, at the firm and it's it's more able to transmit you know many things that are going on in the firm, right? Many types of knowledge. Um, if it's specialized, right? So probably you as a, as, a, as a firm, you know more exactly what this, what this person, what this inventor is going to, is going to share. Huh? So basically it's, it's more the limit, it's more limited what, uh, what he or she is going to share, right? So obviously here we can talk about the formal network of collaborations as well, the number of collaborators that, uh, that uh, an inventor has, the intensity of the collaborations, or uh, going back to the informal social network, right? That's much more difficult to measure, but it's there. So all these are kind of, you know, items of the firm's, of the firm internal structure that can affect, you know, uh, the risk that I have as a firm to when I allocate an inventor to a collaboration, right? And probably, you know, this list can be can be longer. This is just uh, food uh, for thought. So uh, also like uh, when we're talking about IP protection, for instance, in our paper, actually this is, um, you know, the possibility to adopt this, uh, this strat strategy of selecting staff that's particularly well protected in terms of IP. This is possible when you have a minimum size at the firm, right, and at the you know the, the research team level, and a, give a minimum specialization of, of the workforce. Otherwise, you, you you don't have this flexibility, right, to whom I send, right. So I have you know uh, I, I do not have otherwise different people with the same or very similar knowledge and different IP protection, right. So uh, here the size of the of the and the structure of the workforce is also a determinant right of the of this decision so um well this is just kind of you know some again uh, some thoughts related to the firm's structure and that involve r&d workers and affect mainly the knowledge flows that can potentially affect 
both value creation and value protection in an R&D alliance. So I think that this opens up an interesting set of, of you know, research questions that can be addressed. Um, the problem here, as always with alliances, is that you know, this is challenging to disentangle, especially empirically. Uh, so this is kind of you know, something that has to be really thought, right? So the point in alliance is that you know, there are many decisions that happen at the same time. So it's difficult to, you know, to disentangle them, right? So, uh, but I think that this is only kind of the tip of the iceberg, right? So, and I think that, you know, it's, uh, it, uh, it has been, you know, uh, good, like well, this symposium is, is good in order to kind of uh, give us a little bit of, you know, of uh, food for thought in this, uh, in, this, in this line. So thanks a lot, uh, Navid, for, uh, for asking Thank me to, to participate. Thank you, Nels. Very interesting, very interesting work and very insightful comments. Okay, so next, Adam Kleinbaum. So a network lens on cooperative strategy, challenges and opportunities. Adam, please. Thank you so much, Navid. Um, and thanks everybody uh, for being here. So um, uh, Navid asked me to, to join the symposium, um, even though Trevor had already has already presented our paper. Um, so I, I thought about just presenting it again, but decided that wouldn't be the best idea. Um, instead, I'm gonna give uh, just sort of a, a general overview on some thoughts I have um, related to uh, this topic. And, and they actually pick up directly on one of the points that Neus made um, as she was uh, wrapping up uh, her comments. Um, she said uh, something to the effect of, um, you know, looking at informal social networks um, with regard to cooperative strategies and interorganizational relationships um, is really hard because measurement is, is really difficult. Um, and I think that's, you know, 100% right. Um, that's the challenges that, uh, that I'm pointing to here. But I also think that increasingly there are opportunities to do that. Um, and I think if we can do that, we can shed light on cooperative strategy in a way that's really important and that really hasn't been particularly feasible until recently. Um, but that I think um, you know gives us great opportunities to to learn some new things. So so that's what I'm gonna um, talk about, um, and hopefully I'll I'll get through that pretty quickly. Um, my thinking about this um, goes back to a paper that uh, came out of my dissertation, um, where I looked inside of organizations um, and looked at mobility of people um, within a, a large IT company. And and one of the um, things that I really focused on um, in this paper is that mobility creates bridging ties. So you've got a, a division um, on the left with uh, nodes depicted in black, a division on the right with nodes depicted in yellow. Um, but if one person moves from the yellow division to the black division, that mobility creates uh, the, um, the formation of these ties that the yellow person has back to the people that they used to work with when they were a part of the yellow division. Um, and those uh, the existence of those ties facilitates uh, coordination. Um, and one of the things that uh, I showed in this work is that mobility has this general property of creating ties across boundaries. So uh, this person is somebody um, who experienced very little mobility 
And as a result of their network um, was very tightly clustered. Um, this person experienced a bit more mobility and their network was a bit more diverse. Um, and this person experienced even more mobility um, and their network was even more uh, diverse and uh, even uh, more rich in brokerage. Um, and the result of that is the opportunity for people uh, to coordinate the actions of, uh, of different uh, parts of their organization. Um, I looked at this in the intra-organizational context in that work. Um, I've replicated some of this work in, in a recent project with uh, Evelyn Zhang and Brandy Avon. Um, in this paper, we actually extend that work by looking at gender differences. Um, and one of the interesting results that we find is um, building on a bunch of work on gender and networks. Um, we know that society often penalizes women who behave in counter stereotypical ways. And network brokerage is often seen as counter stereotypical for women um, because it's seen as uh, an agentic form of, uh, form of behavior um, and therefore as being male typed. But interestingly, what we find here is that when women uh, in experience mobility, that gives them some license uh, to form these sort of uh, cross-boundary brokerage ties in a way that's consistent with feminine stereotypes because um, it, what they're doing is essentially just keeping in touch with their former uh, colleagues. And so um, we extend this idea about mobility, but look at it in uh, through the lens of gender and, and gender differences. Um, we, we've seen that this works within organizations, and I'll, I'll talk in just a moment about why uh, much of this work has focused within organizations. But there's reason to suspect that this applies, this applies across organizations as well. Um, this is a paper, um, really influential paper by Lori Rosenkopf and uh, Rafael uh, Cordora, um, who showed that when inventors move between firms, um, that facilitates uh, attention to the technical knowledge uh, that they bring with them within firm, within their new firm, not only um, to the firm that acquired the new inventor, but also to the firm that lost the old inventor. So the, the relationships that persist between the people who used to work together um, actually facilitate um, paying attention to the technical knowledge in the inventor's new location. Um, and that in turn enables disparate organizations to uh, learn from each other. And so here across organizational boundaries, what we see is that inter-firm mobility facilitates uh, coordination. I think what all of this really points to is the opportunity um, to think about the role of informal networks um, in the development of cooperative strategy um, and how relationships between individuals who reside in different firms um, actually enables those firms to work together more productively. Um, but as Neus pointed to, and, and I agree, there's a really big challenge associated with doing this, which is it's hard, uh, it's hard to get the data. Um, it's hard enough to get the kind of rich granular data we need on just one organization. Um, but getting comparable internal data from multiple firms um, has proven to be nearly impossible. And I think for this reason, the network perspective on cooperative strategy um, has really not gotten much attention. What I wanna suggest is that in spite of this big challenge, there's a big opportunity to do work in this space. Um, and I'm gonna talk for the, the remainder of my time here um, about a couple of approaches that make this um, still challenging, but at least possible. 
um, the three general approaches are using um, inter-unit activity within a single organization as a proxy for inter-firm activity. Um, this is the approach that has been mostly done to date, but also two other approaches uh, that build on network research, which I'm calling here egocentric approaches and whole network approaches. And I'll describe what I mean by, by each of those. Um, using in inter-unit activity as a proxy for inter-firm activity is basically what most of the research to date has done. Um, it's what most of my work has done, the work that I introduced at the beginning, um, where we look at people who move uh, between units within a large firm. Um, and the reason that we did that, and we, we actually, um, in both of the papers that uh, I cited, um, we uh, describe that as a strategic research setting for studying this. Because when you look at a single broad firm, you can get data across all the different units of that firm that is directly comparable to each other. And that enables you to make uh, inferences about mobility between units and the uh, consequences of that mobility. Um, and on the one hand, that of you know ability to get data from a single firm, um, I think has been very generative. It's, it's led to a lot of insights. But the challenge is that it really is still intra-organizational. And so to the extent that we're interested in cooperative strategy, um, it's not exactly the same thing. And so I'm gonna focus the rest of my time on, on these two other approaches. The first one I'm describing here as an egocentric network approach. So what do I mean when I say, within network research, egocentric network data is data that's collected on each person's network as separate from each other person's network. And you typically collect this data by asking the simple question, you know, Adam, who do you interact with? Um, and the answer that, that I might give is I interact with uh, the six people that are on this panel. I interact with, with Navid, with uh, Gwen, with Trevor, with Neus, with Deepak. Uh, I think I missed one. Uh, Apologies to whoever I'm forgetting, you're off my screen. Um, uh, oh, Javier, of course, our discussant. Sorry, Javier. Um, but um, if we did that, you could construct a network that, uh, that looks like this. Um, and I would be sitting here at the center and each of my contacts would be arrayed uh, around the outside. And within the world of interpersonal networks, um, that's what a lot of people do. Um, and the benefit of collecting egocentric network data um, is it's relatively easy. You only have to rely on me as the only informant to tell you who is in my network. And the more people you survey, the more people you have um, in this egocentric network sample. Um, in many cases, we ask people not just about their own contacts, but also about the ties between their contacts. And as a result, you can sort of fill out some of the, uh, the other relationships that might reside in this network. But the approach is more or less the same. If we think about extending this approach to inter-firm networks, um, the demands are a little bit more substantial. So for starters, you need internal records of intra-organizational interactions. So you'd have that here um, among the people who interact inside the organization. But in addition to that, um, you also need uh, internal records from a single firm based on the inter-organizational interactions 
and you need those at the individual level. So this is uh, the, the example that Trevor gave in his talk about the, pur the purchase orders that we used uh, in, in the paper that he presented to construct um, networks, uh, both within the organization, but also linking our focal firm to other firms. Um, and if you could read the fine print on uh, this purchase order, which, which I know that you can't, um, what you would see is it would list the name of uh, the company that uh, was supplying um, the, the component. And it would also list the name of the individual person within the focal company that made that purchase. And so that enables us then to both link the focal firm to other firms. So those other firms are listed here as A, B, C, and D. And it also enables us to link those other firms to specific people inside the focal firm. Um, I call this an egocentric network kind of approach because all of this data is collected from just one firm. Um, and as I said, you know, we know how hard it is to collect data from even one firm. If you had to go out and collect data from multiple firms, it, it really becomes impossible. And so the benefit of this kind of an approach is that enable, it enables us to work with just one firm but still to collect data on that firm's interactions with other firms beyond its boundaries, just as we did uh, with these interpersonal, uh, these interpersonal ego networks on, on the other side of the slide. So that's what I think of as the egocentric network approach um, to, looking at, um, uh, to looking at cooperative strategy. The other approach that network scholars use to collect data is what's called a whole network approach. And in a whole network approach, rather than focusing on a single person and asking them only who is in their network and treating that egocentric network as separate from the other egocentric networks that might also be in your sample, a whole network approach involves defining a bounded community and getting data on everyone in that community as they link to everybody else. So as an example of this, um, I've done uh, a number of studies based on data that I collected in my core MBA class at Tuck. Um, I, uh, I teach all of the students at Tuck and I have them all uh, as part of the, the course fill out a network survey where they indicate who their friends are within uh, the MBA population. And as a result, I'm able to you know, stitch together everybody's answers into one big picture of the entire network of first year MBA students. Um, if we think about how you might do that um, in the, co uh, the cooperative strategy context, there are a couple of approaches that begin, uh, that begin to move toward uh, what's analogous to a whole network kind of approach. So the most widely known one and, and the one that Neus used and, and pointed to in her talk um, is patent data. Um, and of course, we know the, the strengths and weaknesses of, of patent data. Um, they're readily available. Um, they're very insightful as we think about uh, invention and innovation. Um, but of course, from a network standpoint, um, patent co-authorship is a, is a pretty coarse measure. Um, there are a lot of interactions that uh, happen that don't give rise to patent co-authorships. And so uh, because of that, there are a lot of interactions that might be relevant to cooperative strategy um, that are missing from patent data. That's the one that historically has been available. But recently, there are uh, you know, increasingly other sources as well. Um, so Wei Ang um, did a, an amazing dissertation where he collected uh, a significant sample of, uh, of, of LinkedIn data. 
Um, and using LinkedIn, he was able to uh, link individual people, not only to firms, but also to each other, and essentially map out um, a, a network map of how people interact, both within their organizations, as well as across organizations. Um, you could imagine that um, this is uh, a way that you could easily stitch together something that begins to resemble a whole network um, within a given context. Other data sources are also becoming available recently that would enable you to do something like this. Um, for my dissertation, I collected email data from a single firm. Um, so in that sense, it was really just a single firm study. But one of the things that um, you know, I said at the time was, well, wouldn't it be great if there were um, email data like this from a whole bunch of firms that um, you know, we could uh, assemble and, and stitch together. Well, you know, fast forward now um, more than 10 years since, since I collected, close to 15 years now, since I collected my dissertation data, um, and data like this exists in the cloud. And so cloud-based electronic communications data enables us to potentially knit together uh, the communication network of a large population of individuals across the firms that they work in. Um, so Abby Jacobs and Duncan Watts have a, a paper out recently in Management Science that looks across uh, 65 large firms and almost one and a half million users. Um, an even bigger data set, Rafaela Sadoun, Jeff Polzer, and, and others um, looked at 3 million users from 20,000 firms, similarly using um, cloud-based email data. Um, in all of these cases, um, the data were aggregated for them by the company who provided it. And so they don't have the kind of level of granularity that you would need in order to do quite exactly what I'm describing. But in the world we live in today, there are numerous companies who have um, something resembling whole network data that would allow us to do this. Um, LinkedIn has it, um, Facebook certainly has it, uh, companies like Microsoft and Google have it. And so I, I think the opportunity is there um, to do this kind of work. Um, and I hope that um, as people think about the sort of um, you know, next uh, frontiers in cooperative strategy, uh, that you keep these approaches in mind and think about the role of networks um, in getting these things done. Thanks very much. Thank you, Adam. It's really amazing. Thank you so much. Uh, a really great summary and uh, very insightful comments. Okay, so the next, Deepak, uh, Deepak from Deepak Nayak from uh, Fox School of Business. So uh, he's presenting our paper. Thank you, Deepak. Can you see my screen? Yes. Now? Yeah. Okay. Um, all right. So good morning, afternoon, and evening to everyone attending this symposium. I am Deepak Nayak, and I'll be presenting this joint work with Navid, Ramranganathan, and Vivek Tandon. And in this project, we are looking at uh, the effects of uh, competition in the Alliance portfolio and how it affects the knowledge production structure and inventive outcomes of focal firms. Uh, but before I begin, I would uh, first like to thank uh, Navid and Gwen for organizing this seminar uh, symposium and uh, to the AOMSTR division for supporting them. I would also like to thank Javier for agreeing to join us and uh, giving us comments to improve this work. And finally, I would like to thank my fellow panelists and all participants. I hope that this project is interesting. Um, you find it interesting and hope to get your feedback and some thought-provoking questions to move this further. 
All right. So let me jump into this presentation uh, uh, for our project titled Divide to Unite. How does competition in the firm's alliance portfolio affects its knowledge production structure and outcomes? Okay. So uh, the phenomenon that we are studying here is uh, we are uh, investigating um, alliance portfolios and the conventional wisdom that we receive from uh, the literature has primarily focused on the benefits that the focal firm reaps by forming partnerships with these different firms. Uh, and mainly the mechanisms here alluded, uh, are alluded, uh, alluded to are the ability of these focal firms to draw knowledges, uh, resources as well as capabilities from the partner firms and then recombine these uh, elements to generate new knowledge. But, the, but this received wisdom implicitly assumes that uh, there's uh, a certain level of ease of knowledge acquisition, knowledge transfer, as well as recombination anywhere within the focal firm. And uh, uh, basically when uh, these focal firms form multiple alliances in a given period, more often than not, you would have these partners competing uh, in the technological domain as well as maybe in the downstream markets. And so such an ease of uh, knowledge acquisition transfer as well as recombination of knowledge implies that the partner um, you know, may have concerns about knowledge leakage from uh, of their proprietary knowledge to other competitors that exist in the focal firm's portfolio. And when such a threat exists, uh, prior work uh, that Navid and his co-authors have shown that uh, not only threatens the stability of the partnership, but also may lead to early termination of these alliances, right? So we suggest that focal firms deliberately organize their knowledge producing units in a way that assures these partners of minimal risk of knowledge leakage to other competing partners in the focal firm's portfolio, alliance portfolio. Uh, and does this really happen in practice, right? Um, Neos also pointed to the importance of these human resources. And here are a few examples that uh, we could draw. I mean, there are many more, but just to highlight a couple. Uh, so the first one is by Brandon Dean, who's the pres president of AVO Consulting. And in his interview with the Dallas Business Journal, uh, Dean refers to you know, changes in the internal organizational structure of ABO's workforce to assuage any concerns of knowledge leakage from one partner to another. And in this case, these both partners happen to be downstream, uh, you know, competitors in the downstream market, Oracle and MuleSoft, which uh, provide uh, ERP solutions. And in the second example, uh, so the first example belongs to the information technology domain. The second example is from the pharma domain and where we see that uh, Jim Foster, who's the CEO of Charles Rivers Laboratories, addresses a concern raised by one of the analysts. And the context here is that Charles Rivers, Charles Rivers Laboratories had acquired these two separate firms, Argenta and Biofocus. And uh, both these firms in their individual capacities used to work with their clients on the same technology, the CAR-T-based therapeutic, immunotherapeutic areas. And um, when they were acquired by Charles River Laboratories, uh, the natural question that some of these analysts came up with uh, was whether there is any chance of you know, uh, communication between the scientists working on these two teams. And uh, to which Jim Foster re responds by saying that there are you know, inter-organizational measures 
uh, intra-organizational measures, segregation measures that uh, you know prevent any such kind of knowledge exchange. And so these two examples, and there are several more, uh, you know, they point to the practice of segregating inventors, developers, or other knowledge-intensive human resources uh, by the focal firms in order to prevent any, uh, you know, knowledge leakage concerns of the competing partners. And so uh, we asked two questions in this paper, this project. Um, so the first one is, how does F referring to the focal firm, adjust its internal knowledge production structure when its portfolio partners compete with each other. And as we saw, uh, more often than not, uh, these firms tend to segregate or isolate these knowledge resources. And what that does is basically it restricts knowledge flow. And the restricted knowledge flow is obviously going to affect certain other outcomes, which happens to be our second research question. How does this adjustment of the internal knowledge production structure affects its inventive outcome, the focal firm's inventive outcome. And in this case, we are specifically looking at inventive productivity, inventive quality, and redundancy. So to motivate this uh, first research question, uh, we argue that this presence of competition in the Alliance portfolio, what it does basically is that it undermines this assumption of frictionless knowledge transfer. Right, because partners who are concerned about knowledge leakage to competitors through channels within the focal firms may require the focal firm to have some sort of uh, you know safeguards that uh, hinders these knowledge flows. And uh, like we saw in most cases, what we are seeing is that uh, employees or human or individuals or uh, basically these employees who interface between different uh, you know knowledge producing units, these are often more often the channels that uh, you know lead to this kind of knowledge transmission or knowledge flows and so what the firms end up doing is that they isolate these resources from the rest of the organizations and like neos pointed out in many cases uh, there may be certain uh, employees that work specifically for a certain alliance right uh, that they are cut off from the rest of the organization so what this kind of uh, isolation does uh, and we hypothesize is that uh, you know larger or the greater the competition amongst the portfolio partners the greater is the segregation in the focal firms inventor network in other words firms may implement measures such as firewalls uh, to assure partners of their concerns on about knowledge leakage to competitors and um, this kind of segregation uh, what it should uh, eventually lead to is that it restricts uh, you know uh, knowledge flows in terms of people interacting with each other it restricts brainstorming as well as the knowledge about where other knowledge resides in the organization or what new knowledge has been created in other parts of the organization and so uh, we hypothesize that this greater segregation should lead in the inventors in the focal firms inventor network should lead to lower inventiveness and with inventiveness, we specifically say that uh, because now the inventors are unaware about where this new knowledge is being produced or what new knowledge has been produced, uh, we would typically see lower productivity. Um, and again, because of the lack of information about the new knowledge, we will see lesser references to existing knowledge as well as uh, lesser references to new knowledge that has been created. So we would see lower inventive quality. And then finally, uh, inventors who are classified into silos, uh, who are restricted within their unit, 
they would tend to given the you know the, the technological trajectory of the firm uh, they would tend to work on similar problems and so we should see similar kind of inventions occurring uh, in different part of the organizations so uh, effectively uh, increasing the redundancy of inventions so empirical setting here is uh, us public pharmaceutical firms uh, we draw their alliances from the sbc platinum database um and we look at a time frame from 1996 to 2017 uh we for the competition measures we use the 10k forms that are filed by these public firms with the sec uh and within the 10k forms there is this business description section which we use to you know uh, con construct a text based competition measure which i'll explain soon and then finally for the patent based uh, measures of network as well as uh, productive inventiveness we use uh, you know patent data from patentsview.org um as far as our specification empirical specification goes um, for h1 we use a fixed effect specification uh, where inventor network segregation is our dependent variable and for the independent variable we use a exogenous competition among part partners as the explanatory variable for h2 we use a fixed effect uh, poisson model for count dependent variables where and uh, linear uh, fixed effect linear models for the continuous uh, variable which is uh, inventive redundancy redundancy uh and for the explanatory variable for h2 we use the predicted value of network segregation from the first model um about the measures themselves uh, for the inventor network segregation we use uh, shannon's entropy as a measure of uh, clustering or segregation within the inventor network and what this measure does is basically uh, it considers the completeness of uh, of an information network comprising a source a receiver and a channel for information flow and the absence of any one of them uh, tends to disorganize the network or basically you know cluster them apart so that any new information that the source or the receiver uh, gets becomes very highly uncertain and so the high un uncertainty is what uh uh you know we consider as the entropy measure here um and just to give an example uh illustration here uh, from our data this is a very small example but uh, obviously there are complicated uh, networks available there um so here is a firm called medarex which has a certain level of competition in a given year and then because of certain actions of their uh, of the competing partners um medarex has to you know cluster their network further so we see an increase in the competition score as well as an increase in the uh, entropy and visually what we are seeing here is that there is this large component which gets split into two smaller components and they are now isolated so there is you know lack of information flow between these two uh, new components and that is what contributes to the increase in entropy okay so moving on now this is the interesting part here i believe uh, so we are using an exogenous uh, competition measure uh, we construct this competition measure using the 10k forms uh, filed by the partners with the sec and um, i believe that uh, i mean uh, so there is this 
uh, you know, in this setup, the endogeneity is a key concern because the firms can choose whom to form an alliance with or whom to terminate an alliance with. Uh, so what we do to overcome this endogeneity challenge is that we consider only the exogenous part of the competition. And to do that, what we uh, basically look at is, uh, you know, uh, changes in the competition score between, uh, uh, you know, partners that exist in two consecutive years. And uh, these, this part is basically the exogenous part, which is uh, mainly because the focal firm itself does not have any bearing on the decisions that these firms take for on their product line as or maybe downstream market decisions. And I'll just explain uh, what we do, uh, how we calculate this. So uh, let's assume that there is this focal firm F and it has four partners in T minus one, which are A, B, C, and D. And uh, let's assume that one of the partner leaves and we have a new partner coming in, in the next year T. Um, and the exogenous component here is basically the you know the pairs of partners uh, that existed in both the years but because but the scores between these two partner uh, partner pairs might have changed because of some decisions that they make uh, for their product lines or maybe market decisions uh, and this is the exogenous component that we use to estimate h1 uh, uh, whereas the endogenous component, which is because of the you know pairs of partners formed by the entry and exit of firms, this is what we ignore. And for H two, we use uh, uh, you know the standard measures of product productivity and quality, which is the number of patents uh, granted patents uh, filed in a particular year and the number of forward citations that these patents receive. Um, uh, as a measure of quality. For inventive redundancy, we consider the title and abstract of these patents and can again construct a, you know, at a angular distance or a cosine similarity distance uh, and a similarity measure uh, using those uh, keyword vectors. And then we use a host of you know, standard control variables as well. And now coming to the results for H1, uh, we see that, um, you know, the exogenous competition in the focal firms alliance portfolio does lead to an increase in uh, inventor network segregation, and uh, which uh, gives support to H1. Whereas in case of uh, using the predicted inventor network segregation, we see that it does have a negative effect on productivity and quality and a positive effect on the redundancy of uh, uh, redundancy of inventions, uh, giving the overall support to H2, uh, where we say that greater segregation leads to lower inventiveness of uh, the focal form. So to conclude, uh, what we have here is we set to investigate uh, the effects of competition in the Alliance portfolio on the internal organization, as well as um, knowledge production uh, of the focal firms. Um, and what we find is that higher competition does lead to higher segregation of the focal firms inventor networks and consequentially lower inventiveness. And our main contribution here is that uh, although previous literature highlights the ability of focal firm to capture value from its partners in the presence of portfolio competition, we show that such competition can actually undermine the value creation efforts of the focal firm. Uh, that was about it. I look forward to your question and comments. Thank you.
Thank you so much, Deepak. And now uh, the highlight of the of today's uh, symposium. So Xavier, he has been very, very, very patient, and he has kindly agreed to stay a little bit longer. Thank you so much, Xavier. So right, and then just uh, interrupt a little bit. Uh, we typically have ninety minute um, as the schedule, uh, but we are able to um, extend uh, our uh, meeting because it's virtual. So if you are able to uh, stay, that would be fantastic. But if you need to jump off, uh, please do come back uh, to the recording that we will post on the STR YouTube channel. Um, and we also have a lot of information in the chat room. So go ahead and save the chat if you want the information um, and reach out to the speakers. All right, Xavier, go ahead. Thank you. So first, let me congratulate STR leadership for this amazing and wonderful program of opportunities uh, for um, portfolio opportunities to the membership already for almost two years. So this is remarkable. And also big congratulations and thanks to uh, Wen and, and Navid for putting together this really well-tight uh, set of presentations and for inviting me to participate as a discussion. Um, I had prepared some general comments and some more specific comments for each presentation, but I'm afraid I won't have the time to go through the specifics. I'll be happy to, um, to discuss that if, if my colleagues are interested, but I'll try to fold in some of that into the general comments. So I don't have a, a set of slides um, to rush through at this point in time. Uh, so just let me say, uh, First of all, that in the text that Navid sent for this symposium, he said um, firms has been, have been treated in the Alliance literature as black boxes. And I think that today's symposium clearly shows that that's no longer the case, uh, right? I think that all these four presentations show that people have been looking at the internal uh, elements and how the uh, focal firms, internal structure and dynamics affect the alliances and also how the alliance context affects uh, the firm in the last presentation of, of um, Deepak of their co-author paper, it affects internal knowledge production. So I think that this is uh, very good. Um, and obviously most of the papers are already published. So uh, <laughs> you can go and, and one has been doing a wonderful job of, of sharing those. Um, the second sentence actually of Navid was saying alliances are often run by boundary spanners. And I think that this is a critical concept that indeed might have not been fully explored. I can remember at least one, one dissertation already kind of uh, uh, 20 years ago by Sean Lobstrom who looked at the alliance people um, assigned by each uh, company to the alliance <clears throat> and their embeddedness the network structure. Um, but indeed, I think that there is much more to do drawing from the work uh, that has looked at inter-organizational uh, dynamics um, and the work of Tushman and Allen. So these are something that I would really um, kind of call for to draw from that literature on boundary spanners. Then he also mentioned the balance that those boundary spanners have to strike uh, between two roles, being organizational members, I guess, defending the organizational interest in terms of value appropriation or, or value protection, and also, however, contributing to the alliance by sharing some information 
in order to generate some value creation. And this dual role, I think it's very important. And whereas in the Alliance literature, we know probably since uh, Sajak and Olson 1993, this tension between value creation and value appropriation, I don't think that it has been studied at the individual level or at the team level. Um, and so uh, I think this is a very important uh, avenue to pursue for which we have already one reference that has not been mentioned. And it's a also recent, article published in AMJ in 2020 by Anna Bradstom and Dries Fams on international relations as political battlefields, how fragmentation within shapes relational dynamics between. I think there's also a very interesting uh, paper uh, which actually talks about the dual relational dynamics very much uh, in line with this notion of the dual role that people assigned to alliances might have. So um, what else can, can I say uh, in these uh, few minutes uh, that are left? Maybe two more things I would say. I think that there is a lot of potential to think about uh, the dynamics of the interaction between the focal organizations and their alliance portfolio or the alliance network. Um, so we have seen papers mostly looking at internal factors affecting decisions about the alliances, whether it's the formation of a new alliance in the case of Trevor and Adam, or the case of NEOS in terms of the allocation of inventors, which is very interesting because it's operational stuff, uh, operation personnel, let's say, uh, which I think is quite innovative um, and very important. But there is also uh, the, the influence from the alliances, which is kind of part of the external environment of the organization. So I think that in that sense, there is uh, the field is ripe for theorizing and empirical work on this uh, over time interaction between these two um, levels of analysis, if you will, um, and maybe here it would be interesting to think about and draw from a given structuration approach in terms of the interplay between structure and agency, uh, seeing the alliance portfolio, the alliance network as maybe initially decided by the firm from its agentic decision-making power. And by the way, I think that Trevor and Adam is also a very interesting decision-making study. But then over time, this alliance context might be shaping the firm and being part of the structure of the uh, environment of the firm in a way what Navid uh, and his colleagues portray in terms of the influence of the competition um, that uh, the, uh, across alliances in the alliance portfolio might have in the firm um, knowledge production, which is kind of counterintuitive and counterproductive because it reduces, let's say the focus on value appropriation might reduce the uh, value creation over time, which I think it's a very interesting, um, very interesting point. And maybe the last comment would be about uh, organizational structure and cooperative stru uh, strategies going back to the title of the symposium. And here, maybe I would like to um, refer more to formal organizational structure rather than informal. And that's not to say that informal is not important. I think it's very important. And, and it's, uh, I think, remarkable, amazing data set that Adam and, and, <laughs> and Trevor collected, 10 years of data. And this is maybe something that also is uh, something to think uh, for the academy and SDR is 
could the academy promote the kind of data archiving and then sharing that this corporation that Adam and Trevor studied, uh, you know, conducted? I think that it would be very important uh, initiative to try then to have more data longitudinally uh, across organizations, as Adam was saying, that would allow then generalizability, right? That that we <laughs> needed so so badly. But so why focusing my last comment on formal structure is because I think this is what links to organizational design. In a way, what top managers or managers can design is a formal structure. They can try to affect maybe some, somehow the informal structure, maybe through socialization and promoting mobility as Adam was putting uh, forward but mainly they can focus on the formal aspect of organizational structure. And in that sense, um, I would like to bring to the fore here um, the work of Thompson, uh, Organizations in Action in 67, which basically in, in his mind, organizational design revolves around two variables, right? Two challenges, interdependence and uncertainty. And I think and I think that the papers here today, they fundamentally focused on uncertainty or risk. Some risks that might emerge from forming a new alliance, from maybe assigning certain inventors to the alliance, from having competition among the different alliance partners. All these are risks. And in that, in that way, I think that though interdependence is mentioned in all of the works, um, it, it comes a little bit as, I would say, as a secondary factor. And um, maybe um, I, I got the feeling that we're focusing more on this, what Winter called in the 1988 uh, book chapter, the exchange problem, right, of governance choices and the value appropriation or the value protection uh, question. And we are putting kind of on the side or on a secondary role, value creation. And value creation actually uh, oftentimes comes from the interdependence. Why we are forming these alliances? Because we need <laughs> other resources, right? And, uh, and this actually brings the resource dependence theory also, could, uh, which has focused on power also. But um, I, to tie it to the alliance purpose, this is the common, one of the first comments that Heather made in the chat. I think this is central. What is the alliance purpose? What were these alliance for? What kind of resource combinations they are actually trying to achieve? And how these different resource combinations might actually require different arrangements, different structural safeguards, um, different allocation of uh, inventors, of operating staff. This is something, uh, some of my research actually that has tried in SMJ in 2009 and 2014 with my former colleagues in Paris, Bernard Garrett and Pierre Bussoge and also Louis Mulot now at Tilburg, looking at this uh, other side of governance choices and the fact that there is a resource, there's resource needs and they might differ across different projects, across different alliances. And so getting the information, being able to capture to some extent, what is the purpose of the Alliance? What is the resource combination that is aimed, I think would be very helpful to further develop the organizational design implications for the alliances in terms of the interdependence, the kinds of interdependence, whether pool, sequential or reciprocal, that these desire resource combinations with the partners generate uh, for the different partners to manage the alliance. 
So I have also some work on, on trying to develop uh, a theory of orientational integration uh, based on, on the notion of interdependence um, that might, might be useful also here. So I guess I will um, <laughs> close with this uh, given the time constraints, but it's been fascinating to listen and to see that actually uh, we don't have uh, any more uh, an completely empty hole <laughs> about the uh, interplay between uh, cooperative strategies and organizational structures. So thank you so much again, David and, and Juan. Thank you, Xavier. Thank you so much. Uh, so I encourage you to reach out to the authors uh, and encourage uh, the idea of data sharing. Uh, so if that is a possible, that is something um, perhaps uh, Heather can lead to the STR leadership uh, to create such uh, public uh, data sets, if possible. If, if, if people own proprietary data and it can be shared, please let me know. A lot of the stuff we use is not stuff that we own that we can post somewhere else. And so there's, there's a big, big limitation there. But if you have created a data set you're willing to share, please, please let me know. Happy to try and sort of bring all that together on the website. All right. Reach out to that, Heather. All right, so we have uh, reached to the end and look forward to uh, seeing you all in following uh, more events uh, for the STR series. Thank yeah, you January 31st. January 31st is the next uh, next event. Please have a look at the STR calendar. Thank you for coming and thank you to all the panelists. Thank you very much. Thanks, everyone.